You're listening to the Local Open Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Heath. Today we talk with Alan Brewer. Originally from New York, he's worn many hats in his five-decade-long career. From contributing musician and arranger to full producer of major movie releases and even a publisher, Alan has found himself working with many of the who's who in the music and movie industry, including the likes of Rick Wakeman, Pete Townsend, and Arlen Roth. While still in a successful band in the late 70s, he was approached with the idea of leaving his band to be one of the new frontmen for Jefferson Starship. That was before Mickey Thomas. We play six songs that Alan had a hand in producing, including a few that he wrote and played on. His skill as a musician will never be overlooked, and as an arranger, he's always in top form. The stories behind the songs are a key part of this discussion with Alan. Stay with us. Okay, today we have with us Alan Brewer. How are you doing, Alan? I'm doing great. Thanks, Tim. You came on my radar from having an interview with a good friend of yours, Kevin Kelly. He had glowing things to say about you, and when I asked for some referrals, which I do with all the guests at some point, I hope to network and get to know more people. Uh, Yours was the first name he actually came up with. He said, you've got to talk with Alan. He's got some amazing stories about the industry. And so he connected us and we went ahead and uh, made this arrangement. So great. It's great to meet you, even though it's uh, far away. I feel like you're in the room with me. You too. I'll, I'll try and keep it that way. Yeah, Kevin's a great guy. And if I can remember the stories, I'll tell them to you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that'll be great. In the last year, it's been a wild year. What has kept you busy over the, the last year? Well, in fact, these days, I am focusing quite a bit on some television series that I'm involved in developing and, and some independent feature films not all of which are necessarily music-oriented or music-intensive. In recent years, I have shifted my focus into that area of film production and uh, television production and and away to some extent from soundtrack production, music supervision, score composition, record production, that sort of thing. I did spend uh, a number of years in Nashville a while back focusing on music publishing. But once I moved back to Los Angeles, which was now, I guess, over 15 years ago, I started moving more and more back into the film and television business, first music for film and television, and ultimately shifting into straight ahead production where I can be an actual a collaborator in a different way as, a, as an owner or a part owner of a project and not a hired gun musician or composer. So that's really what I've been focusing on is the television and film production, various shows and projects that I've been a part of or that I control that I've got options on. Well, I've read some of the uh, material you sent along for preparation, and it's impressive. We'll, we'll talk about a lot of this as we get going. So you spent a lot of time switching up your focus then in the last year. Did you find the, some of the shutdowns very debilitating in pursuing those things? Yes, uh, unquestionably. It isn't really the last year where my focus shifted. It had already been shifting for several years. And there I was in an industry here, living in the Los Angeles area, in an industry that was pretty well paralyzed. Little to no production going on, which 
people not working in their offices. Many of the offices, most of them still are not open and very difficult to get the attention of executives to whom I wanted to pitch these television shows or independent films that I had developed or had been a part of. And even though people were perfectly capable of accepting pitches and having Zoom meetings, within a few months of the shutdown, if you want to call it that, people became pretty weary of Zoom after Zoom after Zoom after Zoom. And although at first it was a novelty and people were enjoying getting to just stay home and screen things and look at projects that are presented and even virtual film festivals. I had one agent tell me that that she actually preferred it because she could screen more movies this way than having to fly to a film festival and do all the things you have to do in person and go from theater to theater and take the meetings and go to the parties, although that's fun. She was able to get through a lot more material sitting at home and screening things on her computer. Yeah, you know, some people are just amazingly efficient in front of their computer and others are in-person people, people. Yes, yes. And it was definitely different. I mean, even for me, I, I am not so much of a festival rat that I go to all of them, but I've, I've been involved in running a couple of festivals and have been to quite a few just as somebody in the industry. And certainly there's a tremendous appeal in going and meeting face-to-face and having drinks with the person or having dinner and going to the screening and then going to the after party. And some people think that's all just a way to have a lot of fun and go to a lot of parties. And yes, it can be fun, but, but it is also, it's a very social business, probably more so than the music business in a way, the film and television business in, in terms of the festivals. When you go to a music festival, it's not the same. The word festival doesn't mean the same thing in right. a way. Yeah. You go and you listen to the music and you kind of have your fun while you're listening and it's a big concert all day or for a few days and you go home, you go to a film festival and in between screening the films, you're going to lunches and dinners and parties and meetings. And it's an entirely different. It's more like a conference blended with a festival, even if it's just called a festival. In any case, this past year has been tough and slow in terms of moving things forward. But things are picking up again. Somebody once told me about the movie business. You can confirm this or not. The fear of directors is that they don't shoot enough footage for a good editor to work with. Is that true? Is that like one of the fears of a director that they don't well, it, give them enough material? Well, it, it used to be uh, when people were shooting on film and film was expensive for, to process, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now that just about everybody is shooting digitally, they just make sure they have enough memory to capture everything they're shooting and directors are, are shooting a lot more in some situations. Now that, of course, there's always time restraints. So the restraint of how much film you can shoot is one thing. Uh, getting, making your day, as we call it, getting everything you were supposed to shoot that day and all the scenes and all the setups is another restriction. You need to get what you need to get. And of course, COVID, the, the, all of the additional restrictions now make things a lot slower oh, and yeah. a lot more expensive. Uh, with things being more expensive each day because of all the additional costs relating to safety on set and uh, additional testing and all the other factors. I imagine there's ramped up pressure again because you have less real free time, available time, I should say, to get your shots and to get what you need, to get the footage you need. Uh, Having not been a director, 
uh, I don't have as much of an emotional attachment to that concept of not, but having been a producer and having <laughs> had to hurry the director along or the directors along, it's like, come on, we need to get finished. need to move on. You can't do another take. Let's, let's go to the next setup. Next setup. Yes. Then there's that famous phrase, we're losing the light. We're losing the we're light. We're losing the light. The What do they call that? The magic hour? Magic hour. The magic hour. Yeah. Twice a day, you get the magic hour in the morning and the evening. And if you squander that time, shame on you. Maybe that was the start of the 12-hour day when people shoot on location. They want to make sure to get to get the sunrise and the sunset. That is actually a good point. Of course, you'd think that throughout that, they would take a break like a siesta in the middle of the day to give everybody a chance to get fresh again for the push to the Mm. magic time. Don't. Yeah. Uh, You talk to people on a film crew. Uh, It's grueling. No siesta. I've never been on one. So often in, uh, when you're shooting on location, uh, you're doing six day weeks and 12 hour days. And although the union turnaround requirements and that sort of thing, Sometimes the producers are willing to pay the penalties to do short turnarounds and all that sort of thing. You can you can manage to juggle the cast by not have, you know by giving them enough turnaround, but your crew most of the crew just has to be there the whole time. And uh, but it, it can be tough when you're doing seventy two hour weeks. You know? yeah. Oh, yeah, seventy two hour weeks. That's... It's a lot of work, and sometimes you know constant stress work, and you get your thirty minute meal breaks. And, and all that sort of thing, but it's... It's grueling, you know, yeah. It is, it is grueling, yeah. Question, right out of the blue, have you produced anything that is out of Canada? Music or film, either. Either. Um, I, no, I've done a bit of recording up there for projects. I did a movie called Tokyo Pop yes. long ago, and uh, directed by a woman named Fran Kazooie, who co-wrote it as well, who actually made one other feature film after that she also directed the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie the feature film wow uh, and was involved as a producer as was her husband cause on the tv show but she directed the the feature uh in any case Carrie Hamilton Carol Burnett's daughter who has and Carrie has since passed Carrie Hamilton was the female lead in the movie and by the time and she wrote and sang what was effectively the end title song in a way it was the last scene and as I recall it bled over into the beginning of the end credits but there's a scene where she's singing this song in the studio at the end of course she's in the scene she's miming it we had already recorded it but by the time it was time to do her vocal i had cut the tracks in new york and then needed to do her vocal and she was working on another movie up in the toronto area and i, I flew up to toronto and recorded her i do not remember the name of the studio and so i've done some things like that i did probably more work in the uk uh, in terms of recording than i have done in canada and with respect to uh, actual film production, I haven't actually shot anything up there. I haven't done anything up there, but there is one project. I, I think I mentioned to you, my friend and, and partner in Montreal, is a, a former Marvel-published character named The Human Fly. There was a couple of years of a Human Fly comic book series based on a real person who claimed to be the world's greatest daredevil and 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 wore a superhero costume with a full mask where you couldn't identify who he was. And he did these real live stunts, but then ultimately became well-known enough for a very brief period where Marvel licensed the character 
in order to publish a series of comics. On the cover of each comic, it said the wildest superhero ever because he's real. Well, he was at the time doing this sort of out of out of Montreal, Canada, and his manager, investor guy was a, a guy in his early 20s who was actually the son of or in a family that owned a very large sausage and pepperoni factory oh. <laughs> in, in Quebec in Montreal called Roma Foods, which is still there. I've been to the factory now. It's it's gigantic and very they're very successful. Successful. But it was a family owned business and this young guy didn't want to be a you know pepperoni maker anymore. He was making sausages with his with his hands before they had some of the technology to stuff the sausages by machine or something. He was working with the cold meat all day long. Anyway, he wanted to be somebody and do something special, and he decided to manage and invest in this human fly character in real life and finance the stunts and promote them and that sort of thing. So all that to say, Tony Babinski, my friend and partner in Montreal, some time back was able to arrange to represent the family that still owns it, the, the, the Ramasieri family, the manager's family, or, or his wife at this point, specifically his widow, owned all the rights to the character in the story. And we now own it. And we, so we have this franchise that we own and control and we're developing a feature film project as well as a television series based on the human fly out of Montreal. And if we were to shoot that the way we want to, most of the movie would be shot in and around Montreal, and a decent portion of the of a TV series would as well be shot up in Canada. Toronto, Toronto doubles for New York City quite a bit. You know, they're, they're definitely, and of course, when I mean before COVID, when when you're able to get certain incentives from the Canadian government and from the provincial governments to shoot up there and hire locals and spend the money there, that's very appealing to not be shooting in some place like New York or D.C. if you can go and shoot in Canada. Uh, and, and the exchange rate, of course. Oh, uh, yeah, but they try and make it real easy to bring that kind of business up uh, north of the border. So mm-hmm. it's just hard to turn that down when they have good locations and cooperation and, frankly, not the same sense of red tape and stuff. They just cut through right. it and say, we want the business and come on up. And from my understanding of, you know, having friends and associates and sometimes collaborators in Ontario and in, in Quebec, the the governments up there, provincial and, and the national government, are very supportive, of course, of local, of Canadian citizens and, and local provincial citizens in terms of music and all the arts, it seems. Um, yes, there are plenty of complaints about how they do it and how they make the decisions and where the money should go and that sort of thing, but generally speaking, much more than the states. Uh, Canada is very supportive of its own artistic community and, and, and even the craftspeople and the crews and all that in terms of trying to generate work. And then I don't know what the restrictions are like now, but, uh, what the rules are like, I should say now, but I know over the years I've heard a lot about what percentage of the songs on the radio have to be by Canadian artists and that sort of thing. Yeah, they have that those restrictions. Is that way. It's, it's still that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of really good Canadian productions that would probably be swamped out by just a deluge of so much non-Canadian movies and TV that there would be almost no local industry that would be uniquely Canadian. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as onerous as uh, it might appear. Yeah, no, no. I, I think it's great for the people who live there and who are doing their work there. Let's get to some music here. 
there's a tune that I believe that you actually play on called Devil's Creek Breakdown. Tell us the story. Mm-hmm. Devil's Creek Breakdown. Devil's Creek. Uh, so uh, there's a movie called The Burning that is a horror movie that was made sometime after Friday the 13th. It's a summer camp you know, horror movie where a lot of teenagers get maimed and killed. <laughs> was that your first the, horror movie that you developed? That was my first. I didn't actually develop it. I didn't produce that movie. I was assistant to the producer. There you go. But I had never done any non-music work for movies prior to that. Okay. That the first time I was on a movie project from start to finish. Okay. From before the shoot till we delivered the final movie. And, and I had two jobs on that movie. I was assistant to the producer, kind of an associate producer's job. Um, and I was also the music director once we got into post-production. Rick Wakeman was hired of Yes, of yes. Uh, was hired to to record, to write and record the score and come to New York to do so. I was living in, still living in New York at the time. So most of this horror movie score was Rick Wakeman performing just about everything, various synths and, and piano and all that. This, the score itself to the movie had virtually no instruments that Rick wasn't playing. And it was all quasi-orchestral at times, but also electronic sounding at other times, that sort of thing. In any case, there were a couple of scenes that did not call for prog rock or even Rick Wakeman's score kind of sounding music. There was one scene that was supposed to be like a fun rock, country rock, light-hearted Allman Brothers tune. And I produced and played on that one. And in fact, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, Anna Pepper, wrote that one. And then there was one where the, 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 the kids at the camp were all, they're having fun and splashing each other out of canoes and they're going down the river in canoes. And and, and they wanted <laughs> what was described as silly bluegrass music. They want silly. to give me that fun, silly bluegrass music. <laughs> because it's you all know, silly they, after all. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, guys from New York just knew it as silly bluegrass music. In any case, it was meant to be, you know, a little bit like, you know, Deliverance. I mean, the, the movie was the story wasn't the same as Deliverance, but uh, that was the feel. They're in the country and they're in the river and they're canoeing and they want it. And I, um, so I was asked to do something kind of like something from Deliverance, and I played guitar, but I played. Uh, I, I often did a lot of finger picking. And in a weird way, finger picking that was somewhat similar similar to uh, three finger banjo picking. Although I didn't use my thumb and my first two fingers, I used my thumb and my second and third finger for some reason. That's how it developed for me. And I, I did a fair amount of that. I actually picked on an acoustic 12 string at times. I wrote a few things. In any case, uh, but we needed banjo. So, And I wasn't making a lot of money on the movie. You know, I think I traded in... <laughs> Uh, an electric guitar, an electric 12-string that I had owned down on 48th Street in New York. I went in and traded in and got a banjo, a really nice banjo. And I learned to play banjo well enough to play this one piece of music, this one song that I wrote on the banjo. I just practiced, practiced and practiced and practiced and wrote this thing and practiced and figured out a way to make it sound like I could actually play banjo. And so on Devil's Creek Breakdown, I'm playing banjo. I wrote it. I'm playing banjo. And we have some interesting guests. Arlen Roth playing electric guitar. Fabulous. Uh, many, many years ago. We're, this was probably 1980 or 81 that we recorded this. Uh, Arlen Roth. Um, and uh, I think Kevin Kelly is playing bass on it. I'm reasonably certain that Kevin was playing bass on it. 
uh, a former bandmate of mine, Mike Garo, G-A-R-E-A-U, was playing fiddle. He was actually the other guitar player in a band that I was in up in, in uh, Massachusetts when we first met, when I was living up there. But he's he's since passed away. But he, same thing, he could play fiddle just well enough to make it sound like he could kind of play fiddle. Anyway, and then um, Liberty DeVito from, at the time, uh, drummer in Billy Joel's band uh, for many years, drummer in Billy Joel's band. And he lived in the New York area, and he was not touring with Billy or busy at the time. And I got him to come into the studio and, and play drums. So he's playing in a style that typically isn't something you'd hear him playing with Billy Joel. And that's who's on Devil's Creek Breakdown. Oh, there's a pedal steel. There's a pedal steel player on there whose name I do not remember. I'm very sorry. If you're listening, and you know it's you, I humbly apologize. And again, and, and to connect this, I'm sorry, I tend to connect this to Kevin Kelly. This was done at Kevin's workshop recording studios in Douglaston, New York. This was recorded and mixed there. Let's spin this thing up. It's Devil's Creek Breakdown. Was amazing picking and you sure fake it really well let me just say thank that. you thank you very much what an amazing song that was you played banjo like i mean you owned it right thank you i appreciate totally that. Owned yeah. it the additional people on there it was kind of interesting now that arlen's episode has been published to hear him mm -hmm. on here amazing player as well as kevin kelly whom we have mm -hmm. interviewed also 
It seems like old home week here. Your show is becoming a bit incestuous, Tim. Tim, I, I don't know. Well, everybody knows everybody this way, right? Yeah. Now, if I can just get Rick Wakeman and uh, Pete Townsend to show up, they'll have stories too, right? They'll have stories. Rick has an amazing group of stories. In fact, he tours and tells those stories in between playing keys as he's doing that sort of tour as a one-man show these days sometimes. If anybody, completely unsolicited though, if anybody ever gets to catch Rick Wakeman on tour these days, I think he's coming back to the States in the fall doing this one-man show. It's incredibly entertaining because he really tells a lot of fascinating stories and he's an extremely funny guy. Uh, and, and you know, people in the United States have this image of him or Pete Townsend as being like rock gods and that sort of thing. But Rick has, and, and you know, and very serious all the time. Rick has an amazing sense of humor and is very entertaining. In fact, in England, he has been the host of comedy shows. And he was one of the people on a show called Grumpy Old Men for a while and that sort of thing. So anyway, if anybody gets a chance to, to catch Rick Wakeman on tour solo, it's it's a lot of fun and you get to hear him play. I read somewhere amazing. that he does stand up also. He, he sort of does. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that he goes out and does a whole set at a comedy club, but he does tell jokes. Yeah, that's well, for there sure. is he that, does tell funny that stories. Uh, folklore out there about him. So he sounds like a, a wonderful person. Let's hop back now from the last year or so. I know we've sort of bounced around to the early 80s and all. Let's go back mm-hmm. a little farther, uh, say, to the five years before COVID. What all was going on in your life then that kept you going? And what projects did you work on? And Again, as I said earlier, uh, I had already started making the transition I, after having done when, when I first got back to Los Angeles uh, after living for eight years in Nashville, uh, I did a number of movie scores back to back and spent most of my time doing that. But while doing that, uh, one of the movies that I did, a movie called Trailer Park of Terror, and maybe you'll play something from that later. The director was a dear friend of mine, a guy named Stephen Goldman. I had met him in Nashville. But he was actually originally, again, closing the circle, he was originally from Montreal. He's the one who introduced me to Tony, who's my current partner on The Human Fly. And Stephen passed away a few years ago. He was originally part of The Human Fly Project as well. Uh, But Stephen directed Trailer Park of Terror and asked me, please, please do the score. Even though he and I were already beginning to develop projects with me, with the intention uh, being that I would produce the movie or co-produce with somebody else, and he would direct. We had a few feature projects and even some TV things we had started to develop. But at this point, he still wanted me to kind of do my old job, as it were, and, and go back to doing the music. And partly because I, he felt like I was the only person he knew who had worked with straight rock and hard rock artists and musicians back when, but also had lived in Nashville and was a fan of certain aspects, certain kinds of country music and alternative country and, and Americana and dark roots music and all that sort of thing blended together. He figured I could do his hillbilly death metal score, which is what he called it. <laughs> hillbilly death metal. <laughs> and so I wound up doing the score to this a trailer park of terror movie some of it is acoustic some of it's electric there's actually a guitar slinging zombie in the movie on screen and when he's playing on screen it's actually me playing and he's pretending that sort of thing he's miming but uh all this to say that during that time even though i was doing that score and writing and producing and playing guitar on it i was already working uh, starting to develop film projects as a producer and it's outside of the music area 
So by the time we got to, you're saying five, six years ago, the last five or six years, uh, most of my focus had shifted into this area of developing film projects. In fact, I've got a, it's not really a sequel because it's not a follow-up story, but a second trailer park of terror movie that I'm uh, trying to launch that I've got the rights from. It's based on a comic book series of the same name, Trailer Park of Terror, that's been around for quite a while. So I've got a, a, another script and, and also thinking about doing a television series based on Trailer Park of Terror. I already mentioned to you this, the Human Fly movie, which we had started working on back then, or at least developing the beginnings of developing the project, also based on, in this case, a, a former Marvel comic, and then several other feature films screenplays that I had either optioned or worked with the, somebody developing and, and some television series as well. And that's really what I've been focusing on for the last few years is getting these uh, projects developed and getting ready to be launched and sort of stopping our tracks about a year and a half ago when COVID hit and very little was going on in Los Angeles and New York in terms of new projects or, or productions starting up. I've got others, if you're interested in hearing about some of the others, in fact, there are some projects that uh, I'm involved in that uh, also involve my daughter, who is a graduate of Tisch School of the Arts at NYU and is a, a screenwriter and director. For example, there's a feature film that she co-wrote with a very well-known horror writer, a guy named Jeff Bueller, which is not spelled like Ferris Bueller. It's spelled B-U-H-L-E-R, but Jeff there was a movie called The Prodigy out a couple of years ago that he wrote. He wrote the most recent Pet Cemetery that was out. He's now written a prequel that's going to be produced this coming year uh, to Pet Cemetery. He also wrote or co-wrote the, the, the most recent Grudge feature. So he's that guy who is always writing uh, horror and, and thriller type. I think he also wrote a while back for those horror fans, The Midnight Meat Train which was produced by Clive Barker. So he and my daughter, Dana, co-wrote a movie that I'm very actively now pitching and trying to get financed, which is a weird sci-fi horror movie called Dead Fellas. And for anybody who knows some older movies, you might imagine that Dead Fellas, you might have figured out that Dead Fellas is gangsters and zombies and demons. Uh, if they are old enough or film buffs enough to know the movie Goodfellas, then they'll make the connection. <laughs> Uh, but I've got projects like that that I'm working on, a couple of TV series as well, and that's what I have been pouring my energy into, starting some of them from, from scratch, as it were, and getting screenplays written and getting TV pitches and t documents, pitch documents done, pilots written, that sort of thing. So tell us about American Dream. American Dream. Yeah, American Dream is co-written by an artist named Matt King, and a guy... Uh, friend of his, a co-writer, Buddy Montblanc, wrote that song. And it originally appeared on a, a Matt King album uh, called Rube that was out a number of years ago. And Matt King is somebody who was one of my writers. Well, when I was in Nashville, I had a publishing company with a number of staff writers, a studio on Music Row. And Matt was one of the only writers who was also an active recording artist, had, artist, had, had a couple of albums out on Atlantic Records uh, and had reinvented himself in a way and kind of gone to what he really, really loved, which was this very dark roots Americana stuff. I mentioned Hillbilly Death Metal that Stephen wanted for the soundtrack of Trailer Parker Terror. Uh, at one point, Matt called his style of music Hillbilly Goth. Um, but <laughs> I see he, a theme when here. <laughs> when Matt, when Matt was, you know, when Matt was uh, growing up in North Carolina, I think he was playing 
bluegrass and country music with his uncles and his dad. But I think he was also playing Led Zeppelin and ACDC and a bunch of other stuff in a rock band with his friends. Then he became you know, a fan of artists like Beck and some other uh, more contemporary artists with more interesting and unique approaches. And he blended it all together and created this music that he does. At one point, he wound up uh, for a brief period working with, with a female vocalist and writing some songs with her. And, and I wound up producing an album with Matt for that act there's only one album in existence never actually been commercially released the band was to be called or was called silent susan this track is a, a basically a newer version uh that was done by this band silent susan by matt king and morgan miles a song that that matt and buddy monlock wrote that i think is an, an incredibly insightful and, and brilliant take on you know, on, on, on kind of how to look at the American dream from a rural working person's point of view. Okay. That's what this is. So pr- produced by Matt King and me, performed by Silent Susan, and Matt King is the male vocalist on, on the track. Uh, so this whole Silent Susan project was recorded and mixed by Vance Powell uh, in Nashville, and Vance Powell also happens to do all of Jack White's recording, and he's done other artists. He's won some Grammys. Fabulous uh, engineer and, and mixer. So this is called American Dream.
song that's a cooker <laughs> thank you i really yeah, like I think, that song i think it's great i know you saw me on the screen going wow this is good <laughs> i'm glad yeah so so far we're two for two right two for two yeah this is uh <laughs> it's good music uh listen you... if you play if you play one that you don't like you'll let me know right <laughs> no <laughs> i didn't think so <laughs> <I won't. laughs> all right the you can you can be sure that uh the two we've listened to up to now were really good songs and you know like i said the first one very impressive banjo playing and uh this second one to have a hand in producing that and and you said there's a whole album behind this that has never been released huh yes yes um there's a story behind that that i dare not tell okay don't tell it but Uh, but i'm still thrilled to have the opportunity to to make film and television placements and we're trying to get get the songs into things it it will probably never come out as an album as such but uh there certainly can be other uses for the recordings you never know if the rest of the album is like this it needs to see the light of day i believe it does too so and for anybody listening if you search for Matt King, there was another Matt King. I, I don't know. It's hard to know how to tell the difference, how to tell you how to tell the difference. But um, in particular, look for an album called Rube, R-U-B-E. That song in Matt's own original version is on there, but a lot of other great stuff. Very, very, very interesting, unique artist musically and lyrically. Very, very cool, interesting lyrics. So that's the Matt King you want to find. <laughs> That's the Matt King you want to find. If you're looking for the Matt King, look for the Rube Matt King. Rube album Matt King, that's right. (laughs) Well, well, that's great. So here's a switch blast to the past. Yes. Tell us about growing up and how you got your interest in music in particular first. Sure. I grew up in Queens, New York, um, specifically an area of Queens known as Flushing. Flushing. Make the jokes if you want. No. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> and um, My head didn't go there, by the way. It was something else that I remembered. 
In a neighborhood that also spawned Simon and Garfunkel, Paul Stanley from KISS, and a number of other notable people. Uh, I went. I actually went to school with Paul, who wasn't calling himself Paul Stanley at the time, but in any case, elementary school with him. I did not go to school with Simon or Garfunkel. They're older than me, but, but interesting, fun little anecdote. Uh, since you asked about growing up. I was in the Glee Club for three years in a row at PS164, as we <laughs> called it in New York. You know, the New York schools have numbers yep, for the most part, no do. names. <laughs> so um, in the Glee Club, I think it was in the fifth grade, uh, Paul Simon's mother was a teacher at my elementary school. She was a third grade teacher. Mrs. Simon was not my teacher, but she somehow had connected with the, the the two teachers who were the teacher supervisors of the Glee Club and uh, arranged for Miss Simon's son to come in for a little party in the cafeteria after our last performance of, I think it was HMS Pinafore that year. I don't remember for sure. But whatever we were performing that year, after our last performance, we were going to have a, a little party with whatever, candy and soda, and ice cream, whatever they were going to give us as fifth graders. And a special treat, Mrs. Simon's son, Paul, was going to come in with his guitar and sing songs and play, and we were going to sing along and have a fun little time. Uh, this was before Simon and Garfunkel actually were called Simon and Garfunkel. They may have already been Tom and Jerry. I could look up the years and find out, but I, it's not really worth knowing. And sure enough, Mrs. Simon's son, Paul, came in, and we sang Puff the Magic Dragon and 500 Miles and Michael Rowe, Your Boat Ashore, and every damn you know folk song campfire song at the time and had a good old time so interesting and it was that paul simon it was that paul Paul that one if you're wondering out there in radio land that was that paul simon yes what a great story (laughs) anyway so i grew up in queens i got started in music my mother got me a an acoustic classic nylon string guitar with king corn stamps we had in new york the time if you went to the grocery store you could collect these stamps based on how much you spent and you put them in little books you lick the stamps and put them in books and then the books of stamps you could then get prizes and gifts and my mother decided to use all of her king corn stamps because i wanted a guitar i'd seen the beatles on ed sullivan i i wanted to play guitar she got me a guitar with king corn stamps and that's what started it all i proceeded to learn hang down your head tom dooley and the rest is history and the rest is the rest history is, do you play any other um, instruments besides guitar I, I play a bit of i had studied piano as, as a kid uh, i was six and seven years old and then continued with pianism for a few years so i played a bit of piano and i occasionally when i'm writing uh, i sometimes write on keyboards as you heard before i play a bit of banjo convincingly for a while i owned a mandolin and, and hacked around the mandolin never really got that good at it and i did um later on when i went to went to college i started studying congas and hand percussion and it's a bit later in, in life than, than the childhood in new york that, that you asked about but i wound up studying with and performing with a jazz legend named cecil taylor for hardcore jazz fans you know cecil taylor cecil and his tree with his uh, the other two members of his trio at the time, Jimmy Lyons on sax and Andrew Sorrell on drums. Cecil was a visiting professor at Antioch College, where I was out in Ohio, and wound up studying with him and then performing with a 17-piece jazz ensemble, playing percussion only, no no guitar involved. 
I can't say I was ever a, a really expert professional uh, percussionist, but I've certainly played on my recordings and some other recordings, and I'm, uh, I can really shake a tambourine, let me tell you. <laughs> and just and keep me away from a cowbell. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my, my main instrument has always been guitar, six-string and 12-string acoustic and electric guitar. But, you know, I got into a rock band. We uh, formed a band, I think, in the seventh grade when I went on to junior high school, and we called our band The Goosemen. A friend of ours <laughs> in school liked to, you know, goose or pinch girls' butts when they were going up the stairs in front of him and called him Gooseman. And somehow we decided to call ourselves The Goosemen. And we played We played a little theme song when we would play gigs. Hey, you know, hey, we, we're we, the we, we started getting, No, 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 we didn't. No, this was, no. We played the Batman theme upside down. Oh, Instead okay. of da na 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 you know, we went da na 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 Anyway, we played the Batman theme upside down, and we and we called ourselves the Goosemen. Uh, we actually got to perform. Uh, my piano teacher, uh, I then stopped studying piano and was playing guitar, but my brother continued studying with the same piano teacher, Zoltan Tesleri. And Zoltan would do an annual recital for his students they would all play and the parents would come and friends would come and he would they would buy tickets and it was at carnegie recital hall every year he would rent out carnegie recital hall and we would have a, a, a performance there and then once i was no longer playing piano he invited the goosemen to come and play during intermission we did a couple of songs so the goosemen got to play at carnegie recital hall um, when playing at the student recital for Zoltan Tesleris recital. Only when he introduced us, he messed up a little bit. And after getting everybody all excited, very special, very special guest, very special performance. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the goose. <laughs> and then we played our songs. Uh, fun childhood memory. You know, I don't know what, what other things are. And that's how really it started. I just started playing, playing in a rock band playing cover tunes and then we were pretty early on writing original music i wasn't writing very much it was two brothers that were in the band and so what years was all this happening i'd say 66 67 68 through through i was two years younger than i should have been by the time i got to high school i graduated high school and i turned just turned 16 in april and i graduated that june but so 66 through 69 basically Maybe even start, yeah, I'd say 66, uh, I got my electric guitar, uh, 66 through 69, until I graduated high school. And then continued playing with another version of the band. We no longer called ourselves the Goosemen. <laughs> Probably good. <laughs> we changed our name, we changed some of the members, and changed our name to Natural. And the reason we called ourselves Natural is because we were all fans of the R. Crumb comics, and there's a character in the R. Crumb comic, head comics, you know, stoner comics of the time. A guy named Mr. Natural. Mr. Natural. Very famous character from R. Crumb's comics. So then we had, then I played in Natural and we, and, and, and I, you know, I went to college for a couple of years, but still played with the band and then took a year and a half off to play music and then went back to college when I found out Cecil Taylor was going to be teaching there and starting a, an ensemble for community members and and that's when I got my head more into jazz and, and performing jazz. But that's sort of in a very nonlinear way how it all went. <laughs> so when you went to college, that was in Ohio? Yes, Yellow Springs, Ohio, where Dave Chappelle currently lives. Oh, okay. He currently lives there. Good. Yes. But a great little funky hippie town in Ohio. 
very, very progressive uh, college. Again, did a lot of music while there, played, kept playing guitar with other other fellow students there. And, and as I said, played with the jazz ensemble, which was an incredible experience. Tell us about Owen is Leaving and the follow-up Frog Leg Chomp. Okay. So because those have kind of weird titles, uh, I'll explain. Those are movie cues for a score that I did. Uh, you have to give each each little piece of music a name so that you can put it on what's called a music cue sheet. So you can turn that music cue sheet into BMI, ASCAP, or CSAC, or if you're in the United States, or SOCAN if you're in Canada, uh, so that eventually you have a chance of getting your performance royalties as a composer. Uh, in any case, I did a score to a movie called Come Early Morning. It was right after I moved back from Nashville, uh, very, very short while after moving back. All my studio gear was still packed up. Most of the guitars were packed up. And I somehow got the opportunity to compose and perform effectively a score to this movie that starred Ashley Judd and Laura Prepon. Diane Ladd plays uh, Ashley's grandmother in the movie and a few other really excellent actors are in it. And it was directed, written and directed by Joey Lauren Adams. And you may know Joey Lauren Adams for her acting. Uh, she was in Mole Rats and she was in Chasing Amy. And then she had a mainstream Hollywood movie that she did with Adam Sandler uh, called Big Daddy. Big Daddy. And she's, she's in Big Daddy and plays this, uh, this woman in Big Daddy who she didn't consider to be anything resembling a real woman. Uh, and she decided to go write a movie. She, she kept getting offers for those kinds of roles after that, she said, roles of people who aren't real. <laughs> and uh, she had, again, kept, she came from the very edgy indie world, uh, and she wasn't really interested in, in taking more fluff roles. And uh, so she said, it looks like I'll have to write one myself for myself. And she wrote this movie, Come Early Morning, loosely based on it, at the very least inspired by her real life. The whole thing takes place in Arkansas. She had intended to try to star in the movie. But then when a production company offered her the opportunity to direct it, she had never directed a, a feature before and decided she was not going to try to do both, direct it and star in it course she didn't want to turn down the opportunity to direct her own story that she had written and they asked her who ideally she'd want to play her and she said oh she'll never do it but Ashley Judd would be perfect well sure enough Ashley loved the script she starred in this movie so again because I seemed to, to be the right hybrid I got this job and I say that because as I told you before Stephen Goldman wanted me to do his, you know, hillbilly death metal music because I had done country music and had lived in Nashville and had played the banjo and had played a lot, a lot of acoustic guitar, but I also had produced and played harder rock stuff and that sort of thing. And we figured I, I could blend them. Well, in this case, uh, Joey wanted somebody who really understood country music because she was going to have source music on the jukebox and on the truck on the radio and that sort of thing and the environment was going to be very rural America and, and lots of country and southern rock but she wanted the score to be compatible and consistent she didn't then want to have a standard traditional orchestral Hollywood type score and then these country songs coming up in between so she wanted somebody who really kind of had a feel for and understood uh, country music and yet somebody who had done movie scoring and understood 
what that took and what had to be done in order to deliver music properly to be used in a movie. And I had done both. You know, I was up against some up and coming and some very well-known composers. And I got the gig because I had the weird combination uh, that she was looking for. Also because I was familiar with a few of the you know artists that she mentioned that she thought for sure nobody in LA would have ever heard of. And then this is really interesting. The clincher was she had used some uh, temp tracks of a very obscure album that she had found on iTunes or somewhere. The temp tracks, for those who don't know, that's when, when a director puts music in temporarily to give the idea of what they sort of want, but then eventually the composer has to come up with something original to replace it. So she had put these temporary tracks in, and occasionally they do wind up licensing these things, but ultimately you, you don't typically score a home movie by licensing a bunch of existing music. So she had used a couple of temp tracks from an obscure artist she had never heard of, but found somehow stumbled upon. Somebody who she told me was, she said, you know, I'm sure you've never heard this person, but listen to these. I want something, you know, it's kind of like this kind of stuff. You know, somebody uh, named Arlene Roth. And I said, <laughs> not Arlene Roth. She said, what do you mean? I said, I said, really, this is. It's true. <laughs> I said, not Arlene Roth, Arlen Roth. She said, oh, oh, okay, how do you know? I said, because I know Arlen Roth, because I have worked with Arlen Roth, <laughs> because he has played on recordings I produced, and he's an amazing guitarist, and this album is great, and I know the guy who recorded and mixed it, Kevin Kelly. You know, it was just one of these weird, small world things where she stumbled upon. And so between these other country artists that I was very familiar with and country music that she thought for sure, you know, uh, there's a song called Old Chunk of Coal that, that I knew what it was and I had heard it. And then when I corrected her about Arlene Roth and told her I was familiar with the stuff she was playing me and I knew him personally, I was like, okay, okay, you have the job. Anyway, I wound up playing a lot of acoustic guitar in the soundtrack and some, some electric, some full band tracks but I thought you'd find these interesting. This is just me, you know, on, on, on acoustic guitar on a couple of tracks, one sort of more gentle and one a little more lively better from the movie Come Early Morning. Let's first do Owen is Leaving. It's about 44 seconds, the clip. tune and you played that yes sir on my 1955 martin 0018 there you go well i think what's really fascinating about you and we'll get to frog leg chomp right after this is when people initially start listening initially they're going to think oh this guy's you know on the movie end and the the music uh, production side of it but you have some very legitimate, serious chops when it comes to music. I mean, that's just beautiful, that song. And when you, you combine Thank that you. with the uh, the banjo stuff, you are godlike. <laughs> 
Oh, no, no, no. Stop it. <laughs> okay, let's get to the other song, Frog Leg Chomp. just add a little bit of uh ambient noise to that and it takes you right back to the 20s that's yeah, uh you know it was just again what what went with the scene what they're cooking up frog legs and she wanted something fun and a little bit quirky and uh you know and of course if it was a whole song it would have gone on from there but the, the, the point here was that's how long the scene was or that's how long that part of the scene was and, I'm thinking Mississippi or Louisiana, mm-hmm. you know, it's well, this was that there at the point at this point, they're in Arkansas, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've spent time in Arkansas. It would fit there too. And on the same 1955 WAT Martin. Well, same guitar for both tracks. I mean, that's great. It sounds like a dobro kind of sound. Yeah. We went for you know, with the, with the uh, engineer and co-producer of the soundtrack, Jerry Deaton, um, we were, we were going something, for, obviously, for something not as gentle and smooth as the tone, even though it's the same guitar, just the way we EQ'd it when we mixed it. So now are you using a slide on that? No, that's all. Nope. That was all just sliding sliding fingers and bend, a lot of bending strings and sliding fingers on strings. So let's get back to the 70s. We're going to shoot back there. Ooh, the 70s. You were in some bands, and mm-hmm. then you went to university. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened right after university? You left that, and what was your early career like? Well, interesting. I, um, while I was at, during the last couple of years in, in college, I decided uh, if I'm going to pay to get a piece of paper, meaning a diploma, I might as well get two pieces of paper. Um, and I had already done some. The school that I went to, uh, half your time, you're off campus working or doing jobs or projects, not being in a classroom and I had done a couple of jobs working with little kids and then I helped pay my way through the second uh, the last half of college by giving lots of guitar lessons and many of my students were young kids at one point I had 45 <laughs> guitar students wow that's a lot it's insane you know half hour lessons but still one. um and I really liked working with kids and I said I'd, I'd done some stuff in more classroom type work I decided to become a certified teacher after being asked to, to substitute at a school in Springfield, uh, Massachusetts. So I had moved to Massachusetts and was, was subbing at a school in Springfield, Massachusetts. And the teacher found out that I sang and played guitar and asked me, oh, instead of covering the class that you're supposed to cover, you know, we'll cover your class for that teacher who's out for two weeks. But would you go around, we lost our music teacher who's out having a baby. Would you go around class to class and like sing with the kids and play guitar? We'd love it if you did that. And after a few days of doing that, she offered me the job as music teacher in this elementary school in Springfield, Massachusetts. So for the last three months or so of the first year after college, I was teaching music at an elementary school, even though I was certified as a regular classroom teacher. This is what fell in my lap. On the last day of, uh, of school, the, te- the principal called me in and said, listen, we want you back. We've asked for you, but we're, our, your job is federally funded. 
and we have to get it renewed each year. And we never know when we're going to find out if we're getting the salary or not. We want you back and I've asked for you and I think we'll be able to pay you. But if you need work and you probably do and you get another job and have to take it, you, sh- you know, in all good conscience, I've got to advise you to go take it. But if you're available and we get the money, we want you back in September uh, on a full-time basis. And over the course of the summer, my wife at the time, who was also my bandmate in the prior band, and uh, and another friend and musician who had been in a prior band who moved up to Massachusetts, the three of us started doing gigs as a trio for, over the course of the summer. By the time I got the call, the day before school was starting, saying, congratulations, you've got your job back, we got the money, it's approved. We were booked four and five nights a week all the way through New Year's Eve. I had to decide, what am I going to do? Because to go and do gigs four or five nights a week and sometimes not get to bed until three in the morning, maybe even four in the morning if it was far away and a long drive, uh, typically it was you know four-hour gigs, sometimes travel to break down equipment travel time to do that and then get up at six or six thirty and go and teach a bunch of kids all day i wasn't going to be able to do both i wouldn't do either one well and so i was faced with the decision and my thought process was i can rock and roll now and teach later if i decide to good for you to change <laughs> but i but i'm not going to wind up teaching now and rocking and rolling later i'm not going to quit after 10 years or 15 years of teaching and decide to go back. I just know that's not going to happen. And so I decided not to take the teaching job and we proceeded to get more and more gigs. And in fact, uh, that trio, our first live gig that wasn't in a bar was opening for Bruce Springsteen, believe it or not. In Niagara Falls, there were several, Jimmy Spheris was actually the headliner, Bruce Springsteen, the East Street Band, I think was the second uh, it was us uh, and a couple of other bands, a band called Salty Dog, and, you know, a couple of other bands. Anyway, we wound up performing live as a trio, uh, opening for Springsteen, going to a to a party afterwards, a pizza and beer party um, that you know the head of the music committee was throwing at his place and or his you know house that he shared with a bunch of other students. And Bruce actually showed up and ate pizza and drank beer with us. And that was one of the early gigs of that band. And that band ultimately was known for a while by the name of Fat Chance. Fat Chance? Which <laughs> Fat Chance was the name of the band. And, and and we changed it when a lot of our, we developed, a, we added members. We wound up being a quartet and then a quintet and played for a number of years in the, in, in the New England area, uh, based out of Massachusetts, but playing Connecticut, sometimes the, ski resorts up in Vermont and New Hampshire and all over Massachusetts and Connecticut mostly. Uh, and then our fans kept saying, you shouldn't call yourself fat chance. You guys are so good. You have a great chance. And like, <laughs> they don't and get then, the irony of it. <laughs> you know, Oh, they did not get our, our, our name fat chance came from our attitude about playing the music that we would really love to play and still being able to, you know, make money and do well. Anyway, uh, they didn't get it. And uh, but then bands like the Cars were coming along, and so we changed the name to The Chance. And we were The Chance for a while. And that period of life I spent in New England, uh, we we did a lot of concert openers, a lot of concert openers. Um, and I think I sent you a, a list just uh, in case you were curious about any. But you know, we opened for uh, Danko Butterfield the blues band, Rick Danko and Paul Butterfield. We opened for Black Oak, Arkansas. 
we opened for at one point um, Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airman, and we opened for New Riders of the Purple Sage and all kinds of different, very different artists. I mean, often they would ask us to open when the acts were leaning more country because our our material, even our original material, although it wasn't country, it was still kind of like country and blues and rock all blended. Uh, a little bit like Little Feet, a little bit like Bonnie Raitt, sometimes a little more straight rock, a little Eagles, you know, if you blend all that together, usually with a slightly funky edge, more like Little Feet. And so we got to open for a lot of bands when, when the, the music seemed compatible. But certainly the biggest name we ever opened for was that first gig as a trio for for springsteen yeah which was amazing and nobody can take that away from you <laughs> no of course there's no photos of that that's one of my uh you know old age regrets at one point you know i don't remember it was that band i think it was a, a, an earlier band who opened for john lee hooker and john lee hooker was was touring by himself just him and his guitar it was at a university also somewhere probably buffalo he said, you, you know, you, you boys want to be my band for the night? Like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so we wind up doing a gig with John Lee Hooker without rehearsal, of course, and just like following. And uh, same thing, we we did a couple of gigs uh, at, a, at a club called Nathan's Place in Massachusetts, Western Mass, where they had a lot of bluesier and, you know, kind of country rock artists play. Uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, who were great played there a few times and twice we opened for sanitary and brandy mcgee and twice they asked us to come up it wasn't for the whole set but you know come up during their they would do two sets and come up during their second set after we had opened the show they heard us play knew we could play and so we would back up sunny and brandy we have no videos no of course no photos i do have a couple of cassette recordings i think of us playing with, with sunny and brandy but so many of these experiences and these opening act slots and that sort of thing there's no documentation, just my word. You have to believe me. Right. So this would be what, the early 70s, mid-70s? Mid-70s uh, into about, I'd say, 75 to 80. Okay. Just making a living playing, doing all these gigs, um, playing live a lot, doing, doing a recording now and then, trying to get a record deal. Um, at one point, we did a show with uh, Steve Goodman, you know, he just had us come up during his encore and we jammed on a rock and roll song or something. We did Johnny B. Good or something. We didn't actually back him up. But again, he was there. We opened as a band and then he did his show just with him and a guitar and wanted to close the show with some rock and roll. So he asked us to come and play. And he was good friends with a guy named Steve Berg, B-U-R-G-H. And Steve Berg, I think, had already produced a Phoebe Snow album, played bass with David Bromberg and David Bromberg's band, maybe even produced some Bromberg recordings. I'm, I'm not quite clear on that now. Our manager at the time asked Steve Goodman, he had helped us get the gig, and asked Steve Goodman if he would like be willing to take us in the studio and maybe produce some demos for us so we could try to get a record deal. And Steve Goodman said, I'm not much of a producer. That's not what I do. But I've got this friend who's a great musician who's in New York. And anyway, he introduced us to Steve Berg, and Steve Berg did wind up producing some demos for us in New York. Came up to Massachusetts to rehearse with us and, you know, get get things straight before we went to the studio. And then we went down to the city to, to uh, cut these tracks with Steve Berg. Uh, so over that time, we were attempting to get a record deal, got maybe dangerously close, maybe not, not sure. We did some showcases in 
New York City invited agents and record company execs and that sort of thing. And we were sort of on the verge at one point, crazily. Um, so, so my wife at the time and I were the two front people in the band. We would trade off lead vocals and occasionally do a lot of two-part harmony on some songs, but usually it was one or the other of us singing lead on songs that we did most of the writing for the band. And we were actually asked at one point if we would be willing to leave the band. This was after an agent heard us at a showcase of that band trying to get signed by an agency and, and get signed to a record label. It asked our manager, would we, um, would we leave the band to join Jefferson Starship? Because they were looking for new, two new front people at the time. <laughs> wow, and, that's uh, a story. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, this was just an agent asking us. I'm not saying that the people in the band, that Paul Kantner or the other people in the band were going to want us in the band. It never got that far. But the agent wanted to know, hey, they were great as front people. Maybe we could steal them and put them in the band. So was that before Mickey Thomas was It, it, uh, it, it must have been. It must have been when they were. for Starship? I, it must have been. I, I, I'm not quite clear, but I would say this would have been very late 70s. Okay. Probably 79. Um, so, but that actually never led to anything. And we didn't wind up getting a deal. And then shortly after that, Anna decided she didn't want to be in a band anymore. And we just both left the band. I wasn't going to be in a band without her and the band that she used to be in. Uh, it didn't make any sense. So, right, uh, right. Anyway, and then uh, I started, she started wanting to be um, a solo artist. And I was her music director and her producer. And so I was on the other side of the glass for a little while and trying to do some recordings with, with her uh, and trying to get her a deal. But at the same time, I worked on my first movie. That was the cusp. That was 1980 when I wound up starting to work in movies on the set. And that's when I did the burning and left for a couple of months, left Massachusetts for a couple more than a couple of months to go up to the Buffalo area. So I've been dancing around this. Uh, I probably shouldn't be so cryptic when I kept referring to our manager. Our manager was a man named Harvey Weinstein. Okay. Uh, uh, his notoriety comes from something very <laughs> different, obviously. And the producer of the movie, The Burning, is Harvey Weinstein. Any story you might tell about these guys comes from really uh, knowing this man for years and years yes. and years and years. Yes, yes. And so, so The Burning, my first movie, I was assistant to the producer, meaning I was Harvey Weinstein's assistant or associate producer. And obviously he appreciated my musical... Uh, background and talents and asked me to be music director and as music director and soundtrack producer I wound up working with Rick Wakeman for I don't know at least six weeks on the score uh, to the burning and then doing that banjo piece and the other country okay. rock piece that I mentioned and that's where my relationship with Rick Wakeman began in 1980 on the burning and we've been friends since uh, I'll have a few questions after this next song I want you to tell us about it is okay. make me sweat I moved to Los Angeles in 1990. I went to hear, I went to Troubadour. I was invited by somebody I had met to hear a band that she was managing. I think the band was called Animal Bag, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I went to hear this band and because she wanted to, I don't know, maybe she wanted me to produce them or I'm, I'm not quite sure what the reason was to invite me. Maybe it was for that reason. I went to hear the band, but there was an opening band, a band called Off-White. 
I don't know, I didn't know that, but I went with a with a buddy of mine, keyboard player, friend of mine that was living in LA at the time also. And the minute this band Off White started, our mouths, our jaws hung open. We were so blown away by the musicianship of this very funky, edgy, hard, hard rock band, but super funky hard rock band. Well, this is a great song that we're leading up to. And uh, so that was that was how I met Off White. Uh, we heard them, and they did a whole opening set, and I was way more interested in them than I was in the other band, and wound up getting involved with them and producing and publishing and cutting a bunch of tracks with them. And they had the most amazing guitar player, a guy named Reggie Boyd, Reggie Boyd Jr. Reggie Boyd was a, a, a an astounding rock guitarist who had actually also at one point been offered a gig playing with Miles Davis, but he turned it down because he didn't want to play all that crazy stuff where just playing any old note was what Miles wanted to hear. Anyway, he had a whole story. So you know, the only rock guitarist who could, who has the story that he turned down Miles Davis when he was I mean, offered. To, who does that, right? <laughs> who does that? Who says no to Miles Davis? Right. But anyway, Reggie Boyd, uh, great singer named Wade Durham. Um, Mark Meadows, believe it or not, not the same guy that's in Congress. Mark Meadows on bass. And a guy named uh, Donnie Clay, a uh, phenomenal drummer, just all outstanding musicians. And um, so this is one of the funkier things they did. I like to, I like to say that they were uh, what Red Hot Chili Peppers always wanted to be. But, you know, I'm okay. prejudiced. I love this band. And so it's off-white doing Make Me Sweat. And I produced this track. I did not write it. Okay. This is Make Me Sweat.
That song's cooking. Yeah, real low energy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that band. Those guys need to wake up and get some uh, energy behind that song. That was a wonderful song. I'm I'm sure we're going to get some reactions from that. And you had a hand in producing that. Yes, sir. I produced that track. I produced. I don't. I don't remember how many we cut on those. I think we cut four or five on on the same sessions. So uh, whatever that was one of my favorites. Whatever became of uh, Off White? Um, there was a, some personnel changes for a little while. Some disharmony. Oh, it's <laughs> a rock band. Disharmony. It has to be. It's a rock band changing drummers and then a dispute between and then the singer and the guitar player and eventually it wasn't really the same band anymore and then reggie the guitar player became terribly ill with uh his aorta was splitting open or something crazy he had super high blood pressure <laughs> you know you can hear the energy in his playing. he he, he was very high strung and had super high blood pressure and had some very serious medical issues and that kind of put the kibosh on uh, on the band for a while and then things fizzled out and I wound up moving on to do other things and sure. they didn't exist for a while they didn't exist anymore and that was that let's get back to sometime in the 70s maybe uh, early 80s what led you to meet Kevin Kelly oh that would have been definitely 70s again the woman I've referred to several times Anna Pepper knew Kevin I I, I think she was in maybe she was introduced to Kevin through somebody she went to, to, to college with, university with on Long Island, uh, or maybe Kevin even went to the, I, I don't know. I think she might've been introduced by somebody she knew, a musician she knew. She knew Kevin and she introduced me to Kevin. We started doing recordings with Kevin in his house in his parents' basement where he first had, I think he was running eight track at the time when we started and we met. And he's a really talented guy, as you know, and a wonderful, wonderful, fabulous beautiful human being as you found out we just remained friends even when after Anna and I split up a number of years later and Kevin and I remained friends and continued to work together when I wanted to record in New York either I wanted to work by the time I was doing some of these other projects in the 80s like the burning soundtrack and other things uh, that I did I would do them at workshop studios or if it was something Japanese rock band that I started to produce and we didn't I didn't send you any of those recordings that's a whole other era but I know Kevin got into that story with you about working with Japanese bands that was you know that started with uh, the movie Tokyo Pop but then ultimately I wound up producing three Japanese rock bands and recording even if rehearsing in Japan we'd still record in the States when I did those projects we would go to larger studios go into the city and still I would I would want Kevin to work with me on those record and and mix those albums Um, but originally it was through Anna that, that we met and we just worked together for many years. I, I loved working with Kevin. And if he wasn't available or if I was on a project, <laughs> there were times when I had to go around the clock to get something delivered. And even if I could manage doing it on coffee, Kevin would eventually have to bail. And, and somebody who worked with him at the time, Rob Eggston, was another engineer that worked with him. Rob would come and relieve him and work on some stuff. And then they'd, they'd play tag team engineers with me on some stuff. Just for many years, Got he was my number one choice as an engineer uh, to record or mix. And one more very important thing about Kevin Kelly, long before he became a college professor, he was in a sense my record production, recording production professor. I learned an awful lot of what I ultimately held on to and utilized when I was producing from working with Kevin. Some 
that I learned from Kevin, from observing him, and some from going through the process with him and trial and error. And I have to give him that credit and say that he has a lot to do, probably more than anybody else, even though I've worked with other fine engineers over time, probably more than anybody else. Kevin has contributed to my understanding and, and, and knowledge regarding production, music production, audio production. I spent many, many, many an hour sitting next to Kevin. In fact, where some producers are very happy to just leave the room or show up halfway through the mix or that sort of thing. In fact, a, a few times early on, Kevin would say, well, I'll get everything set up and I'll get started around noon and you can come in around two. And I'd say, no, 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 I want to sit there, even if I keep my mouth shut from the very beginning. And I'd say 95% of the time when we got to the mixing stage and other producers might not have shown up until somewhere midway to late stage. Uh, I would sit there and if not say anything, at least observe and listen. And yeah, okay, once in a while I'd poke my nose in early on, but that really, really was a tremendous experience for me and taught me a lot. So it was during that period of time you met Arlen also? Yes, through Kevin. Yeah, they were in the band together. Yeah, they had, what, with, were they with Janie and Dennis together yes, or something? They were. Okay, uh, I met Arlen through Kevin when I needed a hot guitar picker like Arlen. He suggested Arlen. Um, met a lot of these musicians through Kevin. Met Ronnie Lawson, keyboard, fabulous keyboard player, who's done a lot of, a lot of big sessions as well and played with Edgar Winter for a while. I think Ronnie is how Kevin wound up doing Edgar Winter in his studio. Larry Later, great drummer that worked I worked with a lot, met through Kevin and, and through Ronnie. Uh, they were in a band together, uh, Larry and Ronnie Lawson. And a drummer named Mike Braun, who wound up going on to, to tour with Hall & Oates for a number of years. And really great drummer. I, he played on a lot of my recordings later on, too, for, for some of the soundtracks and albums. So, yeah, uh, quite a few. And then a, a drummer who wound up, a drummer, yes, the drummer who wound up in my band in Massachusetts for a number of years, uh, Bill Latang, also uh, had met through Kevin and had him do some recording, and then he just, you know, decided to move up there and be our drummer up there as, as Fat Chance expanded into a five and six piece combo. <laughs> I love that combo. story. Fat Chance becomes Chance becomes... The Chance. The Chance. That chance. That's that chance. chance. So yeah, Kevin was a Kevin was a gateway <laughs> to a lot of great musicians. And, and again, I want to be clear: a good part of uh, why I worked with Kevin so much was because of his skill and talent. Sure. But a good part of it was also because of the kind of person he is. When you're working with somebody that you love working with and who's just a real, real treat to be around, even during those long, stressful times. It's hard to want to change horses, you know, work with somebody else. He's just a, a beautiful human being. Uh, his whole family is. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I've interviewed a couple of them at this point. So <laughs> <laughs> let's see, let's fast forward a little bit into the 80s. You did a, a number of movies there and yeah. you also did the music uh, for some of them also. Uh, we'll get to one of the songs that you had a hand in here. Uh, that was performed by Pete Townsend, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, why okay. don't you tell us about some of that whole period of time? All right, so yeah, after the burning, I started getting the opportunity to do other, sometimes bits and pieces of, of music for things, but but then other full projects. I wound up doing a movie called BC Rock, which is an animated, an R-rated animated movie. At the time, that was a thing. Yes, it was. This was, uh, you know, the movie Heavy Metal and Fritz the Cat and, uh but this was a movie by a Belgian filmmaker, a Belgian animator named Pisha. Pisha had also done a movie called Tarzoon 
Shame of the Jungle. Uh, but this movie, <laughs> this movie was actually called The Missing Link originally, and then the name was changed to BC Records. An American distributor took the North American rights under the condition they could change the movie, change out some of the music, re-edit the movie, change some of the voices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I wound up becoming in charge of all of that. Ultimately, somebody else came in, an executive came into the company and sort of started handling more of the changing the movie part. Um, but I still remained music director, soundtrack producer, score composer. So on, on, and that was around 82, I'm thinking, had to replace a number of songs that they didn't like. The original movie, I think all of the songs that were played that weren't background score were done by Leo Sayer. They wanted something more varied and they wanted to be able to say, we have this one and this one and this one, all these different songs in the, in the movie. And we wound up with a track from Hall & Oates that was licensed because they, for whatever reason, we couldn't get them to write and record a new thing in time. But I did produce some new tracks, one with Clarence Clemens from Springsteen's band, one with, well, actually, it's the track itself is Alan Brewer and Rick Derringer, because I'm singing lead and co-wrote the song uh, with Anna Pepper. I co-wrote the song and played guitar on it, but Rick Derringer is obviously playing lead guitar on it. And so one new track for that movie was with Rick. Uh, a couple of tracks with Rick Wakeman. I got, I got Rick um, to create a few things on it. Kevin Kelly actually wrote and produced an original track for it, like a big featured uh, piece called Ant Battle, sort of a weird prog rock kind of piece that, that Kevin wrote and produced. And I played on it, but Kevin kind of created the whole oh, thing. Fun. Um, very fun. Who else was in that? We have a Triumph Canadian band at the time, uh, did a track, an original track for it. And what movie is this again? It was called, well, the American version was released under the name BC Rock. BC Rock. That's BC, right. yep. like 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 BC. But uh, the original version of the movie was The Missing Link or translation of The Missing Link in French. So a lot of interesting people on the soundtrack. I actually tried to get, I don't know if you ever hit on this with Kevin, but before he wound up working with Howard Stern, Jackie Martling, joke man Jackie, worked at Kevin's studio just as an assistant engineer and as a, intern, I don't know what he started at, but he was working a, a day gig, even though he's doing stand-up comedy and musical comedy, um, Jackie Martling. And and I even tried to get, so at this point, Jackie had already been a writer and a, and a featured personality on, on Howard Stern's radio show and tried to get Jackie to be the guy to rewrite the script because they were going to, it was animated. They could put any words they wanted into the characters' mouths and they wanted an, a, virtually a new script for the movie, not only just new music. Um, so it was quite a crazy, uh, crazy uh, experience. There's a small scene where uh, Bill Murray, Bill Murray's voice, he's got a little cameo in it. He's the voice of a dragon whose fire comes out of the wrong end. <laughs> so you can imagine what that's like. Um, a high anyway, quality uh, project yes, to be associated very, with. You know who wrote it? Who wrote the original screenplay was um, Tony Hendra, who was a writer and, of course, I think editor of uh, National Lampoon, and was famously the manager in Spinal Tap. Um, <laughs> Spinal Tap's manager in the movie This Is Spinal Tap. Anyway, it was great, great time, and did a bunch of a bunch of songs for that, and was in charge of the whole soundtrack for that, and did a, a bunch of recording with different people. Uh, that led to. I don't know that, what, what came next. It's, it's hard to remember what, in what order. Ultimately, though, 
led to being the music director and producer of the movie of this movie playing for keeps I, I was the producer of the movie and producer of the soundtrack and and music director i wrote a few of the songs for it i did not do the background score i was not score composer uh but i was plenty busy doing all this other stuff and that's the, the, the movie that pete townsend was asked to write perform the title track the movie's called playing for keeps the song is called life to life and we had um, that. it was a it was originally going to be Pete and his daughter, Aminta. He wanted, the movie was about teenagers. The movie's got, it's very youthful. And Pete, even back then in mid eighties, it must've been 85 by the time we'd gotten to this, he said, I'm too, uh, I'm an old guy. You know, I, I, I don't want to be the voice of youth. I let my daughter do it. Anyway, he and his daughter were going to do it together. And then for some reason or other, I don't remember what it was all about. She punked out and decided she wasn't going to do it. But he had already written the song and was committed in a way and tried to back out, wouldn't let him back out. Anyway, Pete wound up performing the song as a solo artist, and we recorded the track. He had his brother-in-law at the time, maybe still is, was John Astley. Jane's Getting Serious was probably his most well-known recording as an artist but he was a producer too, brother of Rick Astley. <laughs> if you've ever been Rick Rolled, you know what that, well, who that is. If I go to get you. Okay. So John Astley was Pete Townsend's brother-in-law and Pete's regular producer was unavailable. And Pete wanted to have somebody else kind of make all the arrangements and take care of everything. And he didn't want to produce the track himself. So he, his brother-in-law, John Astley, and, uh, and a production partner of John's, you know, something Phillips. I think you've got it on the sheet there as co-producer. Philip uh, Chapman. Philip Chapman. John Astley and Philip Chapman technically produced the track because Pete, again, Pete wanted somebody he knew and trusted. But I was in the studio the entire time and functioned as music director for the movie and for specifically for, for this track among, among most of the others. Um, I don't know if you're going to play that now, but that's, you know, that was, that's, that's, oh, okay. That's, that was, the, there were other things in between, but playing for keeps again, Rick Wakeman did something uh, with me for it. Uh, at one point was going to be the score composer, but we won't go into that. That was one of those uh, sad uh, Weinstein brother stories. Peter Frampton did a track for us. Sister Sledge, I produced a Sister Sledge track that's in the movie and on the soundtrack album. Um, I wrote and produced the sort of closing song, the big finale song called Make a Wish, performed by a guy named Joe Cruz from a band called the Cruz Brothers that I was producing at the time. I think of who else had tracks in that in that movie. Phil Collins. It was another star started, you know, rock and roll kind of soundtrack movie. Just a group of uh, people that want to work with Alan Brewer. Yeah, well, I'm sure I'm not sure that's what convinced them. I think how much you get to pay me? I think how, yeah, I think getting paid, yeah, might have something to do with it. I, I'm going to digress for a minute about getting paid, if you don't mind. Sure. Going back to Devil's Creek Breakdown from The Burning, Liberty DeVito from Billy Joel's band playing on it. It's like, well, huh? you, get Billy, you, know, you get Billy Joel's drummer to play on your bluegrass track for a movie, a horror movie. And it reminds me of uh, a story, something I read in an interview years back with. Staley Dan. And the interviewer was asking Fagan and Becker, like, you have all these amazing musicians on your albums. And he starts naming all these, Elliot Randall and Larry Carlton and this one and that one and Bernard Purdy and on and on. All these amazing musicians. How do you get all these amazing musicians to play on your records? One of them says, I forget which one says, we pay them. 
That was the answer. So, of course, that was a pretty, you know, cynical point of view, but still the truth in a way. Now, granted, when you're Steely Dan, when you're Don, Donald Fagan, uh, Fagan and, and Walter Becker, it's a lot easier to convince those guys to do it. Yes, they're going to want to get paid. <laughs> Same thing, you know, in terms of somebody like W. DeBito. So, so, so applying that to how'd you get all these people to your soundtrack? Um, to be fair, you know, we paid them. But also, again, Harvey Weinstein, having been, he, he and his brother co-directed the movie, and it was like their baby. By the way, the last project I ever worked with them on. So I wasn't around for most of the shenanigans. Oh, that good for you. Since heard about. I, I bailed after that movie. And uh, there's a story attached to that too, but we won't sure. go into that right now. But Harvey had been a concert promoter. You know, he ran a company called Harvey and Corky Productions in Buffalo and actually knew a lot of big time managers and, and, and artists. And in a few cases, some of these people were convinced because, you know, Harvey either asked or begged, you know, their managers to talk them into it, that sort of thing. Okay. And that, that influenced it too. But anyway, it was quite a soundtrack and quite an experience for me. Okay, let's get to Life to Life by Pete Townsend, written and performed by him. Correct. Gotta let my heart learn to talk. Must let my head learn to walk. I must forget all the hopeless pain. Must bring my life back to life. Once Just go! 
song is so 80s mm-hmm. i want to point out something interesting about that song what i find interesting for those who fans or pete townsend fans you might know that pete rarely takes a guitar solo um especially with the who especially early who when keith moon was alive keith moon played lead in a way keith moon the drums filled everywhere and pete's banged away on big old chords and it wasn't very common that that even later on in the Who, even if after, after Keith was gone, that Pete would take a guitar solo in the middle of a song. And yet we have a Pete Townsend guitar solo in, in this song. Actually has, you know, a section where he's he's playing a guitar solo. And you think people don't really kind of a rare yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's usually other rock guitar gods, if you will, always are known for their solos, whether you talk about Hendrix or Jimmy Page or Clapton, but Pete, that's not really what you know, his trademark is his guitar solos, if you will. Well, his trademark um, is that windmill strumming, right? <laughs> right. Everybody right. knows and that. Again, big giant chords and, and, and of course his writing and all that. But, uh, but as a guitar player, he's not one that's known for taking a lot of extended guitar solos. Anyway, um, there's a very cool, cool solo in that. And, and yet uh, he obviously could do the solos, right? Yeah. He well, certainly in, in, that, in, in his of style, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump out of the 80s now that we've heard uh, Pete Townsend uh, completely gather it together as a perfect 80s tune, and uh, let's mm-hmm. hop into the 90s. What's going on in the 90s for you? 90s is when I was, uh, again, producing uh, Off-White and trying to get them signed. Had produced tracks with the, with those guys, the Cruise Brothers. Kept doing some on and off film work, and, and but really it was, a, it was a writing period and trying to develop acts that I was producing and working with and trying to get them signed and and starting to get into the idea of becoming a, a music publisher, what I call the real estate of the music business. You know, as far as the Nashville business goes, a lot of the producers were also the publishers of the songs they were producing. And so it was basically a way of selling, you know, versions of copies of the copyright that they owned as publishers. Double royalties too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I had started, yeah, and by mid-90s, I had always been a fan of country rock, and, and, and then I got into straight-ahead country music and a lot of folk stuff, and, you know, and folk blues, and really got into every version of Americana and, and the American, you know, styles of music, and started producing some country artists, but in L.A., before moving to Nashville. And then it was, the, it was a little later in the 90s that I moved to Nashville, uh, and that's when I flipped my focus and... Had not and did stop doing film music and started focusing on being a music publisher, signing uh, you know, staff writers, signing songwriters uh, to write for my company, and a couple of artists who were also writers. And really, not being in the studio much except to produce hundreds of publishing demos at a studio that I wound up buying in Nashville uh, and producing. I've, I've literally got hundreds of things that I produce. Most of them I would like to think sound like masters. They were produced to sound like masters, but they were just demos really. They were most of them never intended for commercial release intended to pitch to other artists to try and get them to record. A few of them have been able to make it as sort of masters and, you know, for sync purposes and film and TV and 
home video and they need to replace. Do you have a lot of songs in the sync world that have gotten traction? I have a, a fair number that have gotten into, well, obviously you've, you've heard some of the stuff that yes. I wrote myself, but then uh, I've gotten a few Matt King songs placed. He was, as I told you before, he was one of my writers, but a writer who's also an artist. I've gotten a few things that I, I wrote or co-wrote and sync. And then several of my other writers have gotten things. There was a song that I published that was placed as, as a piece of source music on a jukebox in that movie, Come Early Morning, where I wrote the score. But one of the songs that I published from that Nashville period of time wound up being placed in that movie. I got some things in some TV shows. I wouldn't say hundreds, but probably, you know, a couple dozen placements. At one point, um, they were looking to replace a lot of music that had been used, songs that had been used in the TV show Northern Exposure. Oh, fine. And uh, because they, back when they did the licenses, and I want to, I don't want to get into the weeds about no, music we licenses, sync licensing, but um, they would take, they would pay a certain amount to have certain rights. And back when they were first making that show, they didn't think they'd be releasing the show on home video on DVD for people to watch. Uh, they were just getting the rights to broadcast on TV worldwide. Um, so then when it came to and they would sometimes get pretty substantial artists and substantial recordings and they'd pay enough to use them in the show uh, but then they'd go to release it at home they didn't have the home video rights and instead of paying a lot again for these name artists they'd say let's replace them we'll go in and, and, and mix new songs in in these scenes and we'll pay less and as long as the songs work and are similar to the ones that we originally put in, we won't have to go back to somebody. And in some cases, maybe the artist was up and coming when they first used it or the, or the writer, but then now the, a few years later, they've blown up and want five times what they originally got to use it in the TV show. Now they want that for the home video use. Anyway, I wound up at one point getting, I think about 15 placements in just in the Northern Exposure home video release of songs that I owned, published masters that I owned and songs that I published. So, you know, it has, I haven't had any gigantic hits, you know, no, no big giant superstar country artists like Garth Brooks and no rock artists or pop artists, but I've, you know, had a few placements and continue to pursue those because I know oh, even though I'm not, I'm not there anymore running a publishing house, I still have this catalog of a couple thousand songs. So I tell you what, there's one more song that I definitely want to play because I really like it. It's called Safe at Home. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that song. Okay. This was uh, after I did the score to Come Early Morning. I'd moved back from Nashville and moved back to, to L.A. after being gone for eight years. And I was hired as music supervisor for this movie. I helped to find and hire the score composer. They wanted a traditional orchestral type score and we found somebody for that but I but there were also movies called American Pastime and excuse me the male lead is a young man who plays the saxophone so one of the storylines it's, it's called American Pastime because baseball obviously plays a, a big role in it but it's actually a movie about 
during World War II, the Japanese-American internment camps. And the young lead was supposed to have gone off on a, on a baseball scholarship and gone to college. He's a Japanese-American born and raised in Los Angeles. But his whole family has to pack up and leave on a moment's notice and go and be in prison, basically, on an internment camp in Utah. Uh, although there were camps in California in this movie, he gets sent to Utah to this camp. But he's also a jazz saxophonist. He loves jazz and he loves playing. And so there are a number of scenes in the movie where he, he actually forms a band on at the camp and they perform at dances at the camp and that sort of thing. So music plays a big role. And there are a number of simulated 40s jazz pieces that had to be written and produced and sound like they were of the time. And this one was not one of the ones that he performs on screen but it's actually it's at the beginning of the movie before he his family gets told they have to leave la and each grab one suitcase and run and, and get on the bus and go to the internment camp and he's with his friends in his bedroom and he's playing a new record that he just bought and they're all excited and they all start dancing to the record it had to sound like a recording of jazz at the time in the, in the early 40s but it had to be new and original because the budget didn't allow it to, or, or for whatever reason, they, they decided they didn't have the money to license stuff from Duke Ellington or anybody like that. And so we had to go in and create something that sounded like it was written and recorded back in the 40s. And this was written and produced with me, written and arranged by a guy named Tom Saviano, who's also playing sax on it. Uh, and then we produced the track with a bunch of great LA musicians and tried our best to make it sound like it was written and, and, and recorded in the 40s. And although there's no scratching on the record, this is actually a mono mix I sent you that's EQ'd to sound almost like it was in the 40s. Let's listen to this. Safe at home.
love that song. I got to tell you. Sound legit? Oh, totally. And It's supposed to be like a Count Basie track or something like that. Oh, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, my first question is, who was that trumpet player? That's that's yeah, he was pretty great amazing too. stuff. Uh, I could get you a list of all the all the players at some point. Oh yeah, um, it's. Uh, but as I said, Tom Tom Saviano was a sex player and, and composer and great guy and great uh, great. Yeah, writer well, that's good. Too. Well done. That's <laughs> that's very good. I like that Thanks. kind of music. It's got a snap to it that you don't really get today. Uh, you know, a lot of the music today is just cluttered with canned pieces. You know, people do some MIDI stuff. They buy loops and they put them together. Oh yeah. But, you know, these guys, you don't loop a trumpet like that. That's the guy no. that's, that's no. playing it in the sax, you know, good stuff. Uh, we, you know, we had a blast. I mean, that was done separately with Tom, but then there were sessions done for some of the other tracks for the movie. Again, the movie's called American Pastime for anybody that wants to see it. It's a very good movie. The stuff that we recorded that was supposed to be this, this kid's band, you know, at the camp, uh, we had a bunch of great LA players and, and we had a drummer, not on this track, but on all that other stuff was uh, Greg Bissonette. Uh, and of course known more, I, I guess to more people as a rock drummer and he tours with Ringo when Ringo tours, you know, played with Zappa and all kinds of big, big people all over the years. Amazing LA drummer, but he was phenomenal doing legit, you know, jazz stuff. And very brief story about Frank Zappa when I was in college, um, as I've mentioned before, he came to your uh, classroom and a... sang a fairy tale songs. No, no, Frank Zappa didn't come to the classroom. <laughs> His mother did not teach at the school. Uh, but I, I told you that there is a work study school. You half the time you're off campus doing jobs. I wrote to Frank Zappa at Bizarre Records and asked if I could do a quarter, you know, a three month period of internship. I offered to work for free to work for Bizarre Records because I was such a big Mother's Invention fan, a Zappa fan. And they wrote me back pretty quickly. Um, you know, this was before the days of email, so it had to be by post. And I got a letter back, very polite letter from somebody at the company saying, we really appreciate you wanting to work here and it's very nice of you and glad, glad you're interested, but we really don't need anybody because <laughs> we really don't have any work for you to do because we're a very small label and we don't really have other artists and there's just no reason for you to come and work here, but thank you for offering. So I did not get the gig working for Frank Zappa. <laughs> did you save that letter? <laughs> I, I don't think I did, stupidly. Oh man, that would have been a great on the wall. You know, you heard back from Zappa. Heard back people. from Zappa. If Zappa had signed it, I probably would have saved it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep, I get that. You know. Well, this has been a fascinating interview. Well, thanks. I hope so. Great. And, and I, I know that, uh, you know, the conversation was a bit all over the place because my career has obviously been a bit all over the place. I've done different things at different times and there's been no just linear thread. So hopefully it'll make sense to people listening. Although it's, that's some enjoyment out of it. Will hearing. You know, if somebody were, was going to sit down with you and get to know you, this is how the conversation would go. You would say something, they would ask a question and it would send you in another direction. And then you right. say something and they go, wow, what about that? That's exactly yep. how this goes, and I think that's why people appreciate uh, local open mic and what Great. The, the conversations we have with people. Uh, they're not so much a formalized interview. I find I, I work better without the script, and I think people end up hearing information 
that comes out in a way that they would have found it out also and discovered it. Great. Just in a conversation. Yeah. 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 So once again, Alan, I really appreciate the time you've taken and we're going to have to do this again. There's just, I think far more stories there. Uh, maybe some of them on the darker side, maybe we'll explore. Why not? We could do that, I suppose. We can go dark next time if you want. Sure. <laughs> yeah, let's go dark next time. <laughs> I've never gone dark yet. Maybe we'll try that on, see how that plays. <laughs> but thank you so much for being a guest on Local Open Mic. You're most welcome. Uh, very comfortable, enjoyable conversation. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the invitation. Okay. Good day, Alan. And that concludes our interview with a very remarkable Alan Brewer. Alan's contact information is in the show notes. Be sure to check them. He's got a Facebook presence and a LinkedIn presence. So for Local Open Mic, I'm your host, Tim Heath. Remember, get up on that stage and step up to the microphone. The world is listening. <laughs>